following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. Today's sermon is a continuation of a sermon series entitled Old Words, New Life, Transformative Teachings from the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains many stories that often strike people as strange. It is helpful to remember that whenever a story is told in the Old Testament, it is because there is a lesson that we can learn from it. Old Testament stories, as perplexing as they might initially seem to be, are intended to communicate a message to us. This morning, we heard two stories from the book of Judges. They're so odd, you might never even have heard of these stories before, and yet they have much to say to us today. Both stories relate to the theme of freedom. College students arriving on campus, especially in their first year, often find that they have a new kind of freedom. But freedom can bring challenges. What is real freedom? Often people think that freedom means being able to do whatever you want. But the Bible points out in multiple places that that is not enough to be truly free. You might be able to do whatever you think you want and yet find yourself in bondage to anxiety or to guilt and regret or to addictions or to pressures of all sorts or to negative thought patterns and behaviors. Ultimately, we are in bondage to decay and death. True freedom means a release from all those spiritual forces that would hold us in chains so that we can find genuine wholeness in life and become the people we are meant to be. Paul talks about such spiritual freedom in his letters. In the verse we heard from the letter to the Galatians, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. His central point is that we will find authentic freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll be exploring that theme this morning. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The two Old Testament stories we heard this morning both unfolded during the time of the judges. This was the period after the people of Israel had settled in the promised land when they as yet had no king. They were a loose confederation of tribes with no central government. The only overarching leaders that they ever had were temporary leaders who often would emerge in response to a national crisis. These leaders were called judges. They were not courtroom judges. They were the temporary leaders who would arise to address a particular challenge. Much of the time during this period, there was no overarching leader at all. The basic idea was that the people were supposed to have God as their leader, but they did not do so well at following God's commandments, which is quite evident in the story that we heard about a guy named Micah. This guy stole a bunch of money from his mother, 1,100 pieces of silver to be exact, she uttered a curse about it, which might have troubled Micah, 
In any case, he returned the silver to her. She praised God and said, I consecrate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make an idol of cast metal. She then gave 200 pieces of the silver to a silversmith to fashion an idol, and her son Micah set it up in a shrine. You likely are thinking, wait a minute, don't the Ten Commandments forbid the making of idols? Indeed, they say, you shall not make for yourselves any graven images, and you shall not bow down to them. But that is precisely what Micah and his mother proceed to do. If she says she's consecrating the silver to the Lord, how can she then make an idol with it, which the Lord expressly forbids? And what is this guy Micah doing, who ripped off his mother, and now seems to be trying to profit off of this shrine that he set up around the idol that she made. The story is an example of the religious confusion, corruption, and chaos that often prevailed in Israel during this time. The people had been delivered out of slavery by God, and they should have been worshiping only the Lord. But all the peoples around them had impressive-looking idols made of beautiful metal set up in shrines, and people in Israel thought that they should have some idols and shrines too. So they tried to blend the worship of God into the kinds of pagan practices that were going on in the cultures around them. In terms of outward appearances, this of course is very different from circumstances today. But in its essence, there is a lot of similarity. Most people in America believe in God. But it is very easy at the same time to get caught up in the values and the loyalties and the behaviors that prevail in the culture around us. People will worship God and at the same time buy into the rampant materialism of our society. Or people will proclaim allegiance to Christ and then try to blend that in with their political loyalties or they'll try to tie belief in Christ to a fervent nationalism, such as you can see happening in Russia right now, today. It's very easy for people to make an outward proclamation of faith, while in actual practice, their real devotion is going towards less than godly causes. This kind of dynamic was a long-term problem for the people of Israel. They always wanted to affirm that they had faith in the Lord, but very often they got caught up in values and practices that were quite contrary to God. That's quite evident as the story of Micah proceeds beyond the passage that we heard. Micah hired a Levite, a man who was supposed to be supporting the worship of God, to be a priest at his shrine. And he got to liking the man so well he thought of him as a son. Later, some armed men of the tribe of Dan, one of the tribes of Israel, came along. They stole the idol and convinced the priest to abandon Micah and come be the priest of the idol for them, which he did. The warriors, along with the priest, traveled further till they came to a nice valley where they slaughtered all the inhabitants and stole their land, then set up the idol in the town of Shiloh where it was worshiped by the Israelites for years. There is nothing in this story that went the way it ought to have gone, as one troubling action after another. 
the book of Judges comments about the story of Micah in a single pithy verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. The people were free to do what they wanted, but their lives were seriously off track and their society was a mess. Second story we heard was from the end of the book of Judges. We heard the last part of the story in Judges 21. The full saga begins a couple of chapters earlier. This is an example of how often to understand biblical stories, you really need to read or understand the whole thing. Story begins with the story of a man and his concubine. A concubine was a kind of slave wife, but this was not the kind of slavery with which we are familiar in American history. In this case, the man had purchased his wife, but she did have some rights and freedoms. In the story, she gets mad at her husband and goes back home for several months to live with her parents. The man comes to her and pleads with her to come back, which she finally does. The two of them set off for home and get as far as the town of Gibeah, which was located in the territory of Benjamin. They needed to spend the night there. In those days, there were no hotels. Travelers were dependent upon local townspeople taking them in. The two had arrived late in the town, and it looked for a while as though they might have to spend the night in the town square. But finally, an old man coming in from the field encounters them, and he invites them to stay at his house, where he gives them food and even feeds their donkeys. There were some genuinely good people in Israel in those days. This man wonderfully fulfilled one of the commandments of the Lord, where the people of Israel were told, Love therefore the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. We do well to follow that commandment today. The people of Israel were supposed to show hospitality to all, which this man did. But suddenly, during the night, some ruffians from the town come along and start banging on the door of the house, calling for the man who was visiting to be thrown outside so that they might rape him. You may know that this is quite similar to an incident several centuries before in the city of Sodom, where two angels who looked like men were visiting in the home of Lot and men from the town pounded on the door demanding that they should be thrown out to the crowd. Both stories are cases of attempted homosexual rape. Clearly, the sin in each case had nothing to do with homosexuality. The sin was that the townspeople were trying to rape the town's guests. It was an outrageous assault, particularly in light of the fact that they were supposed to be showing hospitality to strangers. In the story, the elderly man who is the host appeals to the crowd saying, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man is my guest, do not do such a vile thing. But the men do not listen, they do not relent. Finally, the man who is visiting shoves his concubine out the door. It's one outrageous action after another. It's, 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 it, it, the, you, she should have stayed with her parents. The men of the town violently abuse the poor woman 
all night long until she is dead. In the morning, when the man who is her husband finds her dead, he is incensed. He thereupon cuts her lifeless body into pieces and sends the pieces throughout Israel with the message about how the men of Gibeah had abused this woman to death, and here's a piece of her body as proof. All the people across Israel are outraged. They raise an army and come up to the territory of Benjamin, where they demand that the Benjaminites must hand over the guilty scoundrels of Gibeah. But the Benjaminites refuse. So the Israelites attack. The Benjaminites put up a huge fight. Although their cause is completely wrong, people today will continue to fight vigorously for causes that are wrong. But finally, the Benjaminites are defeated and their surviving fighters flee and ultimately take refuge at a distant location called the Rock of Ramon. The Israelites then proceed to slaughter all the inhabitants of the Benjaminite towns, including all the women, burning every town to the ground. If you were thinking there's going to be some redeeming element to the story, it's not happening. It's just one outrage after another. The Israelites went on to slaughter the inhabitants of another town called Jabesh Gilead, which was not Benjaminite, but they butchered everybody there because nobody from that town had turned out to help in the fight. They did, however, spare the girls of Jabesh Gilead who were not yet married, and it's at this point that we picked up the story in our scripture reading this morning. When the smoke cleared, the Israelites realized that they now had a new problem. The Benjaminite fighters who had survived no longer had any wives because the Israelites had killed them all. And the Israelites at the same time had vowed that none of them would ever give their daughters to be married to the men of Benjamin. But that meant that the tribe of Benjamin was destined to die out. The Israelites could not accept that because they felt there were supposed to be the full number of the tribes of Israel. They did have the girls from Jabesh Gilead that they had spared, but there were not enough of them for the remaining men of Benjamin. So they came up with a plan. As our scripture passage reported, they said to the men of Benjamin, look, the yearly festival of the Lord is taking place at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel. Go and lie and wait in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and each of you carry off a wife for yourself. And you think, what? The plan is that the Benjamites are supposed to abduct a bunch of young women out of these, this religious dance festival? That's exactly what they proceed to do. Of course, the women's parents could be expected to complain but the Israelites planned to respond by pointing out that, all, that although they had all vowed not to give their daughters to the Benjamites to be married, uh, the parents in this case were not guilty of breaking that vow because they did not give their daughters to be married. The Benjamites took them, so no worries. The, the book of Judges then concludes with a final verse, which says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. 
If you are greatly disturbed by nearly every aspect of this story, that is the point. The story is related in order to make clear that when everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, that is not freedom, it's chaos, with people ending up being treated very badly. The story incorporates just about every kind of wrong you can think of. Murder, rape, the objectification of women, the abuse of outsiders, goes on. No one in that setting was happy. Toward the end of the time of the judges, the people of Israel realized that they were not free. They were in the grip of continual immorality, foolishness, and terror. The story of Israel then proceeds in the books of Samuel, where Samuel appears as the last judge and the first prophet. The people at that point, highly dissatisfied with their society, appealed to Samuel saying, we want a king. They felt that a king could finally bring order and could stop the terrible lawlessness everywhere. But Samuel said to the people, you don't need a king, you need God. You need to start paying attention to God, follow truly in God's ways, and treat people the way God would have you treat them, with love and mercy. Samuel could give the same counsel for us today. In the midst of the troubles of our time, people are often inclined to look for a political savior, but our fundamental need is to get ourselves in harmony with God and with God's will for our lives. The people insisted, however, and Samuel finally anointed for them a king. He warned them that a king would bring taxes and would conscript their sons into an army and launch wars. And it was exactly as Samuel said. The kings levied huge taxes and launched wars. We can relate to that. And unfortunately, the kings did not pay much attention to God either and ultimately provided poor leadership. So the land went from anarchy to authoritarianism, and neither worked out well. Finally, the society, with no good spiritual foundation, was overwhelmed by foreign invaders. First, and then they, they moved into servitude. First under the Babylonian Empire, then under the Persian Empire, then under Greek empires, and finally under the Roman Empire. All this time, authentic freedom was elusive. It is in this context that the gospel message is so decisive. The New Testament proclaims that it is Christ who sets us truly free by putting us right with God and so freeing us from all that would spiritually bind us. Christ brings forgiveness, setting us free from guilt and regret. Christ brings us into the power and promise of God, and so would set us free from anxiety, from the worry that so often plagues human life. Christ renews our minds, setting us free from false ideologies and from every form of prejudice. Christ renews our hearts, freeing us from temptations and from the tendency to get caught up in the values and practices of the surrounding culture. Ultimately, Christ frees us from death and so brings us into lasting hope. 
Christ brings us into full spiritual freedom so that we can truly live in the love and the goodness of God. We can see clearly in those Old Testament stories that the ability to do what is right in your own eyes does not yet bring you into full freedom. Of course, it is better than the circumstances in which some people must live today, in which they are only able to do what is right in other people's eyes. That's the case in Russia, China, other dictatorships on this earth. We can be thankful that we live in a country in which we are free to say what we think, free to go where we wish, free to buy what we want within limits. We are free to vote, free to choose. Sometimes in this country, those freedoms come under assault, and Christians must always be ready to stand firm for freedom. But Christ brings a freedom that is yet far more than political, economic, or social freedom. It is not only a freedom from oppression, it is a freedom for wholeness in life. Christ sets us free to live in fellowship with God, to be able to do what is right, to find our real purpose, to be the people, finally, we were created to be. Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks for that freedom into which you bring us, setting us free from all that would hold us in chains, all that would drag us down, all that would pull us off from a truly good and whole life. You set us free to live in the fullness of your grace, to live as people of your kingdom, to live in what is truly good and right, to live in the light of your everlasting promises. Inspire us, Lord, to put our faith in you, that we might know that real freedom of your kingdom. Lord, as you draw us to yourself, we thank you that you also inspire us to join together to reach out in compassion to others. We pray for people in times of need. Remember those who are mourning, lifting up especially today, Judith Nettle upon the death of her cousin. We join with people in celebrating joys. We join with celebration of 100 years of life on this earth for Helen Brinker tomorrow. And we thank you, Lord, for the many ways that you guide us to grow together in life. We give praise for our fellow United Methodists this morning at the Church of the Cross, United Methodists, and we pray you would guide us all as we continue to hear your word and to hear how you are speaking to us today. You speak through the ages, speaking to our hearts drawing us into that life truly in fellowship with you in which we can know your everlasting love and promise. Lead us, O Lord, as we today would ground our lives in you and so find the real and everlasting freedom of your kingdom. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.